When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. This week is the anniversary of one of the most important Anglo-Viking battles. We've had a few Anglo-Viking battles over the last couple of months. I don't know why, it just tickles me. It's my podcast, thanks for listening. I get to do what I like and hopefully you guys come with me, it's awesome. But this one is the Battle of Malden, fought on the coast of Essex. It gave us the extraordinary poem, one of the finest early medieval poems in English history. My favourite bit is as follows. Slaughter wolves waded then, heeded not water. The Viking band over bright water bore their shields. There against anger, Rithnoth stood ready. Surrounded by warriors, he bade them with shields build the battle hedge. Hold that troop fast against foes. Then was the fight near, glory in battle. A time had come when fey men must fall there. Clamour was raised there, ravens circled, eagles eager for carrion. There was uproar on earth. So that, folks, is the description of the Battle of Malden fought on, we think, the 11th of August, 991. Professor Levi Roach is at Exeter University. I've long been a big fan of his on Twitter. It's great to finally have him on the podcast. And I want to ask him in this episode, do we remember Malden because of the poem? It just happens to be one of those battles that's wonderfully chronicled, or was it actually a very important encounter? And I found his reply fascinating. So this is Levi talking all about the Battle of Malden, that second great wave of Scandinavian attacks and eventually conquests of the 10th and 11th centuries. It is the piece of Viking history the English don't like talking about. So we're going to talk about it right here and right now. If you want to go and watch the first great wave of Viking attacks and how it was defeated, you can do so on History Hit TV. It's not having History Hit TV, simple as that. It's my new digital history channel. I've just been nominated for an award here in the UK, so that's very exciting. I'm very honoured to receive that shortlisting. But go over to historyhit.tv, sign up. You can get a subscription. Pence, you won't even notice it. Simple. And then you get a month for free, and then you can... Watch all these wonderful TV shows, including Dr. Cat Jarman and I going on the path of the first great Viking army to cut a swathe across Britain. So please head over there and do that. But in the meantime, everyone, here is Levi Roach. Enjoy. Levi, thanks very much for coming on the pod. Thank you for having me. You know what? I always think that 10th, 11th century Viking invasions are the ones that the English, the Brits like to forget. A lot of Alfred action, a lot of Athelstan, but then. The Vikings, well, they return. Is it push-pull? Is it English weakness? Is it Scandinavian strength? What's going on here? It's a bit of both, really. What we have going on is, on the one hand, structures are getting more powerful in Scandinavia. 
and then English weakness draws them towards England rather than other parts of Europe. But the real game changer is what's going on in Denmark and to a slightly lesser extent Norway. So particularly in Denmark in the 10th century, we've seen a centralized kingdom first created in the 950s, 960s. And this means both that Danish kings are raising bigger and larger armies than ever before, but also there are the people, the petty chieftains who lost out of this process, some of whom are now looking to make good their losses, who are now homeless and just going off freebooting. So the kingdoms are growing more powerful. But yeah, you've also got that dangerous thing, which is kind of disgruntled, landless, ultraviolent leaders of men. <laughs> exactly. And so it's a kind of knock-on fact that everybody in Scandinavia is now also raising larger armies and operating on a larger scale than we've ever seen before. Is it appropriate or anachronistic, therefore, to call these kind of national armies, whereas the armies of the ninth century were war bands led by Lothbrocks or whoever? Does that mean there's a difference in the composition of these armies? In some of them but probably not in all of them. There's still a bit of both going on. So there's still a significant element of freebooting, and a lot of these armies coalesce for a brief period of time, work together, and then break up. But we also do start to see more national armies, if you like, particularly later in Ethelred's reign, we see armies of conquest coming over as single armies, Danish armies in that case, looking directly to conquer England. And that, again, is certainly something very new. Was the warfare different? I mean, is the fact that the Danes are now Christian, does that matter? The fact that they're fighting in this perhaps slightly more organised way under, under a royal head rather than these more informal war bands, does that change the nature of warfare? So it probably doesn't change the nuts and bolts of warfare that much, but it does go hand in hand with the centralisation of power and the growth of kingship that Harold Bluetooth, who gives us uh, modern Bluetooth technology as a name, is famously the, the king who first brings Denmark together, unifies it like Bluetooth unifies our devices. And he's also a first Christian Danish king. And so there's no doubt that Christianity here is serving to legitimate these more powerful kings and also integrate them into this kind of wider European network of power, authority, diplomacy. So that is certainly helping enable them raise some of these larger armies. What about English weakness? Is it about the lack of continuity at the level of king, the rapid change of monarchs, a sort of troubled succession that leads to Ethelred's eventual reign? So it's partly that, and partly probably that England's been a victim of its own success. So there's not been much in the way of major armed conflict with England's neighbours within the last generation or so. So what you don't have is those kinds of men around who are experienced in battle, who've won or even lost multiple fights before, which you previously had between about Alfred the Great in the late 9th century and the end of, say, Eadred's reign in the mid-10th century. You have almost continual violence, regular campaigns by kings happening almost year in, year out. After that, we have this long, relatively quiet and peaceful period under Ethelred's father, Edgar, the Peaceable, as he's later known. And that probably is partly where some of this weakness starts to set in, that the English simply aren't accustomed to fighting on a regular basis anymore. How interesting. Because Edgar's remembered as something of a golden age, but in fact, without regular conflict, I guess you lose your edge in this early medieval period. Yes, to a certain extent. And it's also a quite common phenomenon we see across the Middle Ages, that very successful rulers are often a hard act to follow, partly because of the weight of expectation, but also often because they ruled domestically with a heavy hand, certainly Edgar does. So they also are all these kinds of factions that a powerful king's just been keeping the lid on, that the moment they then die, come back to the fore. So that's the other factor that's going on for the English is I would say that they are probably slightly weaker militarily than they have been before, but they're also divided politically. 
And that ends up being really crucial in Ethelred's later years. They're constantly fighting each other as well as external enemies. And how are they fighting each other? Are you seeing the cracks appear in this very recent union that is England, which is made up of what had once been very recently proud, very distinct kingdoms? Or is it just political and religious differences within England that aren't that regionally or geographically based? I think you've got both going on there. You have, on the one hand, those old divisions of the earlier kingdoms of England, the Mercian identity in the Midlands. You've got the Danelaw identities in East Anglia and in the north. And those certainly do show different kinds of tendencies. For example, when Swain Fortbeard invades England in 1013, he attacks the Danelaw first and they submit to him. So there is that element. But there also is an element of simply what we see at all medieval courts, where there's lots of competition over patronage and who's in and who's out. And so that's the other way we start seeing these kinds of divisions, particularly by Ethelred's later years, he has sets of sons from two different wives. And we start seeing kind of coalitions building behind these two rival lines for the throne then. And again, that's a very common phenomenon. It's nothing new, but it's something England could have done without with big whopping great Danish armies arriving. We know about the first wave of Scandinavian, let's call them Viking attacks, famously Lindisfarne. During Edgar's reign, is there a complete stop almost? Or when do you start to get these first incursions again in this, I guess we could call it the second great wave of Scandinavian attack? Yes, it's what Peter Sawyer famously called the second Viking age of the British Isles. So it's a bit hard to pin this down because one of the difficulties is knowing how far we can trust our sources. We don't hear of any Viking attacks in the 950s, 960s or 970s. And that might lead us to think it's not happening at all. That's actually unlikely. There probably are small-scale attacks going on throughout this period. So famously, in the mid-10th century, King Eadred, in his will, leaves money aside for his nation to pay off pagan attackers, which are clearly Vikings. So he clearly foresees this might be a likely possibility. So there's probably a lot of small-scale background noise going on there that we don't capture in our sources. But what certainly is true is this isn't threatening in any way the political integrity of the realm. And that really starts to change, probably with the Malden campaign in 991, that we hear of a few earlier attacks in Ethelred's reign in the early 980s and 988, but they all seem to be very small-scale affairs, and we probably only hear of them actually because they build up to later bigger attacks. But it's in 991 we see a game-changer. So this is what I've always found fascinating about Malden, is we happen to have this unbelievable source for the Battle of Malden, one of the great texts of early medieval England. And I've always been confused whether... We remember the Battle of Malden because of this text, or because, in fact, it is, by coincidence, an important turning point, an important milestone in this second Viking Age. I think it is one of those events that gets more publicity because of the poem than it would otherwise. So there is a slight danger there, not least because the poem is a kind of favourite to teach also undergraduates Old English. But even without the poem, I think it would be clear that this was an important event. It certainly was a step change in Scandinavian activity in the British Isles, and in many respects, sets the parameters for Ethelred's later responses to the Vikings. So he becomes infamous for paying them off, for paying them tribute instead of fighting them. And that policy really starts here and arguably is kind of his response to a complete catastrophe where they try fighting, they lose, and then they have to pay tribute. So in the future, they just pay tribute and at least stop that losing a battle thing in the first place and get around it that way. Let's talk about that campaign then. We'll come to the poem in a second. How well attested are the events of the Battle of Malden outside the poem? So the fact of the battle and of English defeat is well attested in contemporary sources. We have it mentioned in Latin hagiographies written around the turn of the first millennium, so within about a decade. We also have it mentioned in an entry in 
the so-called A manuscript of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is written in its present form probably before the year 1001. So again, within a decade of these events. And both of those mention a battle at Malden in which the English lose against the Vikings. So that degree of specificity we know and we have very securely attested. And tell me that in that case, what do we know? Who was leading the Vikings? So that's where it starts getting a little bit more complicated. But at least some of our sources state that they're being led, or at least that one of their leaders is Olaf Tryggvason, who becomes the later king of Norway. And they seem to be trustworthy on this point. There probably are some others involved. So when in 994 a treaty is made between the English and this force, so it ends up staying in England for many years, Olaf is mentioned alongside two other Viking leaders. So he seems to be there as part of a kind of coalition. It seems to be one of these armies that has a number of major players. And in this case, we're probably looking at displaced individuals because Olaf is partly outside of Norway because the Danes have conquered southern Norway themselves and are controlling that. There's an English myth that they were terribly outnumbered at Malden. Do we have any idea of the sort of size of forces involved? It's hard to be precise on this. We do have a number of estimates of the Viking army, which is said to number a bit over 90 ships in two different independent sources, which probably means we're looking at a force somewhere, say, between three to 4,000 men, something like that. How many English is much harder to estimate? Because we, to be honest, have no source that mention their numbers. But given they chose to engage the Vikings at all, it's probably a safe bet that they were around the same size, possibly a little bit larger, but not much if so. You listen to Dan Snow's History. We're talking about the Battle of Malton. More coming up after this. There are stories to tell, myths to explore, legends that shaped the medieval world to captivate the imagination. I'm Matt Lewis, and with my co-host, Dr. Kat Jarman, I've gone medieval. We're waiting here for you to join us. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and let everyone know that you've gone medieval with History Hits. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. 
The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. How did it work? I mean, what's so striking to me as someone who finds naval history so fascinating was the failure of the English to interdict Viking invasion fleets at sea. I mean, obviously it was incredibly difficult, but is it a case of Vikings landing and and word just getting out and the local authorities, the local thanes, people in positions of power, having to gather forces and go and march out to meet them? Probably largely. So one of the things that is noteworthy in this period is that we get very few naval conflicts in that traditional sense of actually managing to intercept your enemy at sea. That's actually extremely rare, even when you have ships guarding your coast. So particularly with the Vikings, the one thing they tend to really have up on the English is that they are better seamen and that they use their boats to very strong advantage. So what they'll do is they'll strike where you least expect, and then they'll leave before you can gather an army. And that seems to be one of the problems the English are facing in this period, is that the Vikings show up and they don't have much forewarning. What we do know about defensive measures in this period is that we do know they have things like beacon systems. So famously, Tolkien's ideas in The Lord of the Rings actually come from Anglo-Saxon practice there. So it's quite possible that they'd have beacons warning them, they would have lookouts on bits of the coast, but it probably would be a case of the Vikings coming within sight of the coast, then warning notes being sent to the English. And it may well be that one of the reasons why Birtnoth, who's leading the English army, decides to engage the Vikings at all is that he knows that if he doesn't, they're just going to pop back in their ships. They're not going to stay around otherwise, and they'll just attack somewhere where his army isn't. The geography of Morden is particularly famous in this battle. Unusually for battles, I suppose, we have a very good sense of what happened. Is that because the poem or because the particular striking nature of where the action took place? That is because of the poem. All the other sources simply say there was a battle at Malden, and that's it. But what the poem describes is a Viking fleet initially stopping on what seems to be a tidal island. We suspect it's Northy Island now, which has a tidal causeway over to the mainland. And then it describes how they initially fight with the English at that causeway before coming over and having the main battle on land. So it's the poem alone that allows us to identify that as the probable site. But it's nearby Malden, which a number of other sources say is where the battle was fought. And then there's this great moment for which the battle is perhaps remembered when the English, they have the Vikings at disadvantage, but then they sort of perform a slightly gentlemanly act that they may come to regret. Is that a fair characterization? Well, that does seem to be perhaps how the poem describes it. Whether or not that's precisely how it happens is trickier because other sources don't provide that level of detail. But you're right. What happens is the Vikings are initially on this island, which is cut off from the mainland by the tides. But then the tides start to go out. And initially, the English fight them at the causeway. And three Englishmen are said to hold this because it's so narrow and the Vikings are unable to make headway. But then they say, why don't you let us across and let battle join fully and the English proceed to do so? According to the poem, they do so because of Birtnoth, the English general's pride. The old English term, overmode, that this is a foolish mistake, certainly is his view. Tactically, it may well actually have been a sensible move precisely because of those logistical concerns we were just talking about in terms of ships, that realistically, if Birtnoth and the English aren't going to let them over, the Vikings are just going to go back to their ships and raid somewhere further up the coast where the English army isn't, and they'll travel more quickly by boat than the English can on foot. So probably the strategic thinking is, we either get them here right now, or they're gone for good. 
And so they make that gamble, and in the end, it fails, and they lose on the mainland. Do we know much about the battle? For looking at other battles, we hear about these shield walls. They appear in both English and Scandinavian sources. It's a truly terrifying way of making war. It would have been, probably in the moment, an absolutely astonishing and terrifying experience for those present. Our poet does describe, yes, shield walls being used on both sides. Beyond that, all we're told is they engage each other, that it's closely fought, and the decisive moment seems to be when the English leader, the English general, Birtnoth, is killed. That then leads to the rout, and then everyone retreats on the English side, except for Birtnoth's own hearth troop, his closest men, his closest retainers, who decide to fight to the last man. And again, one suspects this isn't perhaps the most historically accurate, but it's one of these lovely tropes like the guard not surrendering, that they repay their loyalty to him by fighting to the last man. Oh, Levi, you early medieval historians, you're ruining the romance. I've always dreamed of these house carls falling beside him, as you say, like the guard at Waterloo refusing to surrender. Do you think it's hyperbolic? Absolutely. So there clearly are significant losses, but no army, no matter how well trained, really fights to the last man. And of course, the poet never really manages to explain how he knows all of these things. So much detail about a battle in which everyone died. Who told the story? No, so it's almost certain that most of the force indeed breaks and retreats. But what probably is happening, particularly in the later parts of the poem where it's largely this valiant fight to the death, this is a kind of roll call of the fallen, and the purpose of the poem seems to be to commemorate those dead. So it's a poem that's operating a little bit like Tennyson's later Charge of the Light Brigade. This is kind of a coping mechanism for the English, and particularly the people of Essex, to remember their fallen and the glorious dead and to turn what was this kind of catastrophic defeat into, at least at some level, almost a moral victory. Well, that's the interesting thing. Is that what the poem's doing? Well, I think that's a significant element of what the poem's doing, that it's trying to make it, Birtnoth is this flawed hero, he criticises his pride, but otherwise he's perfect. And so it is a bit like watching a Shakespearean tragedy. It was written for an audience who know it, that the battle ends badly. This is no surprise. So there's a great deal of pathos to the whole thing. All of these valiant shows that you know are going to be in the end, in vain, but they're almost all the more poignant for that fact. What's the aftermath? What's this defeat mean for the English? So, in the aftermath of the battle, the English famously pay their first tribute to the Viking forces to stop their immediate ravaging, but it's clearly not a payment, or at least not a large enough payment to get rid of them completely, and that army stays encamped in England for the next three years. And finally, in 994, the English pay them another, even larger tribute. And then the bulk of the force leaves, and some of them stay on, a smaller amount stay on to become mercenaries in Ethelred's army. So this is kind of a classic get a thief to catch a thief kind of trick. So keeping some Vikings on his side to hopefully prevent further attacks in future years. You know, Levi, we were all taught in school that paying the Vikings money was the worst idea in the whole world. But actually, there are examples of it working around Europe, aren't there? Including, dare we say, the ultimate warrior, William the Conqueror, pays the Scandinavians to leave as well early in his reign. What is your now considered view on the wisdom or otherwise of paying this Danegeld? So, as you say, it's a policy that's been roundly criticised, particularly by 19th century scholars. The great early historian of Anglo-Saxon England, Edward Augustus Freeman, called it a case of expecting gold to do the work of steel. But as you say, actually, it's a very sensible strategy sometimes, and almost all medieval rulers used it sometimes. So William the Conqueror uses it, Alfred the Great uses it, Ethelred uses it, and there's not a big difference really in how they use it. And at least in the short term, it can be highly effective. So actually, in 994, they pay this last tribute, and some of the Vikings join Ethelred's armies as mercenaries. For the next three years, there are no further attacks on England at all. And when they start again, it actually seems to be that the mercenaries themselves have turned coat. So 
it does seem to have often been in the short term a successful policy. Obviously, alone, it generally is insufficient. So if all you have is payment, that becomes a problem. And I think for Ethelred, actually, defeat at Malden hangs over his reign. That makes him, and probably his generals as well, afraid to engage the Vikings and perhaps a bit trigger happy with paying tribute. From then on, they decide, let's not fight, let's just pay tribute, when really you probably need to be balancing the two of sometimes paying tribute when you don't think you can win, or when it's more expedient, sometimes facing them down in battle, or using the time you've gained from the tribute to improve your defensive measures. Right, there. That's the nuanced view I'm looking for. I like that. That's excellent. But eventually, Ethelred is overwhelmed. He is, though to be fair to Ethelred, he actually dies before he's overwhelmed. So he gets a very bad reputation, and partly with some justification. But actually, he doesn't have as bad a track record as you might think. So he dies in 1016 while Canute is in the process of trying to conquer him. What would have happened if Ethelred had been in good health? He's clearly already ill when Canute invades, is anybody's guess. The interesting thing is in 1014, two years before this, he's actually driven Canute out of his kingdom. So he's not nearly as useless as we might think. The problem, of course, for us as modern historians is that both medieval chroniclers and then modern scholars know that in the end, Ethelred's regime fails. So we tend to kind of telescope events. For my money, he's in control and doing just about all right till around the year 1000. But then slowly the wheels fall off. And what kind of happens is that these Viking attacks get bigger and bigger and bigger, partly because he is probably overusing tribute. But at the same time, his internal problems are getting worse and worse and worse. And it's probably those that are actually decisive, because, for example, when Canute invades the kingdom in 1015 for the second time, what prevents the English from fighting him really directly and effectively is that Ethelred and his eldest son are at loggerheads and neither trust each other. So it's these court factions that have actually led to Ethelred and his own eldest son not trusting each other at all, meaning they can't join forces, meaning they can't present a unified front. It's the old story. It's the oldest story in the book. That first decade of the century, the millennium, I guess, the scale of violence is extraordinary. You get Viking armies marching into places where you don't usually, you know, this is not a coastal story. It's not happening in the east. The country has been crisscrossed. There was nowhere safe from the violence, was there? Yes. And again, this is something that seems to be slowly scaling up. So Malden's right on the coastline. That army is doing damage, but it's doing damage very much to the eastern seaboard of England. What changes, particularly from about 1005, 1006 onwards, is we start seeing these armies marching deep inland, marching past Winchester, taking cities like Oxford and Wallingford and things like that. And probably the death knell, really, for Ethelred's regime comes in 1009 to 1012 and doesn't actually come from Canute or his father, Swain Forkbeard, these two Danish rulers, but actually comes from one of these other freebooters, a Danish freebooter called Thorkel the Tall who brings a very large army to England in 1009, and that's the army which you're probably thinking of there that just seems to go wherever they want to. They attack all over the kingdom. In the end, a massive tribute is paid and Thorkel's actually recruited by Ethelred. But it seems that the damage is basically done. From then on, Ethelred's best defence is presented by Thorkel himself. The English army, the English navy, seems to be a spent force from then on. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're writing a big history of the Normans at the moment, which is very exciting, so we'll get you back on to talk about that whenever that's done. But in the meantime, what book should we all go out and buy? Well, if you want to know more about this, there's my biography of Ethelred the Unready, which has a section on Malden, of course. That's part of the series, isn't it? Yes, that's the part of the Yale Monarchs. It's excellent. I've urged everyone to read that. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Leo. It's great to have you on. I've admired you for many years on the internet. Now it's great to meet you in person. Well, it's great to be on. I feel the hand of history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours 
our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thank you for making it to the end of this episode of Dan Snow's History. I really appreciate listening to this podcast. I love doing these podcasts. It's a highlight of my career. It's the best thing I've ever done. And your support, your listening is obviously crucial for that project. If you did feel like doing me a favour, if you go to wherever you get your podcasts and give it a review, give it a rating, obviously a good one, ideally, then that would be fantastic and feel free to share it. We obviously depend on listeners, depend on more and more people finding out about it, depend on good reviews. To keep the listeners coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.